Good morning. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're in the midst of our series. Um, and the reason, again, theme music, it tells you to sit down, lets you know the conversations are ending. But it's also, we stole the graphics to seek and to save. Um, and uh, the Superman theme. And again, Luke 19.10 is what this book is all about. Um, Luke wrote this book describing who Jesus was, that he was the Old Testament promised Messiah. He was the Old Testament promised Son of Man that would come to save us, to save humanity from itself. And, um, and Jesus himself said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And that means us, that we don't seek him, but he still seeks us, that he wants to save us even though we don't think we need to be saved and we don't know we're lost. And so that's kind of the theme of the book of Luke. We've been looking at, we're kind of wrapping it up over the next several weeks. We'll finish the book of Luke, and then we'll get started in the book of Malachi uh, at the first of the year. Today, I want us to look at a question. Each week, we've been looking at a question from the series. We've been looking at a question from the passages. And so each time, what we do is we look for a question from the passage that we preach from. And, and this week is looking for the living among the dead. And, and the real question is, why are you? looking for the living among the dead. This is a question that gets asked, and we'll see today in, in the passage that we read, and it's actually, if you think about it, a really good question. Because isn't it interesting that we live in a world where everyone thinks they have the answers to life, but there's one thing that everyone has in common. They're all going to die. I don't know about you, but that's not real hopeful. Someone telling me that they have the secret to life, they have the secret to how things are going to work, but they're going to die. They're gone. Like, wow, that didn't work out too well, right? They get sick. They have problems. They have issues. It may not even seem like they have major issues, and then they have one. And it's kind of like, well, did they really know what they were talking about? Because it didn't work out real well for them in the end. They died like everybody else, and it doesn't seem like, yeah, they, they did some great things, but... Quite honestly, all of you in this room, I bet you in four decades, no one in your family will know your name. No one. I don't know my great-great-grandmother's name. Four generations. I don't know her name. I know my great-grandmother's name. I don't even know my great-great-grandmother's name. And that's my own family. That has nothing to do with, like, extended people. That we live in a land that's dying. Everyone's panicked right now in our culture. Why? Because the world's going to end in 12 years. Climate change is going to come. It's going to kill us all. Everybody's in fear. Everybody's afraid. It, how do we get out of this? Is there really life? Is there really anything to live for beyond, you ready for this? I'm just going to get mine. I'm going to do the best I can, enjoy my life. And, and sure, I care about the environment. I care about things that are going to happen. I'm trying to look forward. But in reality, if you and I are honest, and even the people who say they believe those things are really honest, they're living for themselves every day. They're not really living a life where they truly believe that they want to save the climate. I mean, most of the people that are really the, the big ones that are on billboards and talking about it are flying in jets all around the world to talk about climate change. If you really believed it was a problem, then stop traveling. Just stop it. Stay where you're at. If you're that concerned about it, if you're that committed to it, lay down your life for what you believe. And what we're finding as we get to the book of Luke, the end of the book of Luke, and the end of all the Gospels, is a God who said, this was my plan, here's how it's going to work out, and then a God who says, I'll lay my life down for it. I'll leave the beauty of heaven, 
the perfection of heaven, to come among the land of the dead, to die, which I shouldn't have to do, and then we'll see in the end of this today that he comes back to life to prove I know what's on the other side. All the other religious leaders are still in their graves. They said they knew what was on the other side, but they didn't come back and tell us about it. Jesus is the only one, Christianity is the only religion that has that claim. And listen, if that claim, this claim that you're looking for the living among the dead, you're asking the wrong people, you're looking for the wrong solutions, if that's really true, then Christianity really is the only true religion in the world. Or we're the nuttiest, craziest people in the world that need to be ignored at all cost. There's no in-between. That's the problem with our faith, and then we have to respond properly to it because here's the deal. Our Savior knew he was perfect. He knew he was God. He knew he had all the answers. He knew he spoke every word of the Bible into existence. And instead of coming and like getting an army together and overthrowing people and passing laws and telling them, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, he died. He, he died in the land of the dead to show them that there's a different way to live. And can I be honest? You and I, we're still chasing all the same things that humanity has chased for all of human history. It's so subtle. It's so easy to look up one day and realize, I'm just chasing the same stuff everybody else has chased. My own family, my own line, my own money, my own career, my own, my own heart. When at some point do we lay down our life and realize that it's, that it's all God's? Last week we looked at the fact that Jesus has been falsely accused. They couldn't find a crime except the crime of him saying he was God. Think about that. The only crime they could find against him, they could not find a single crime. And I said this last week, if one of your friends came to you and was trying to find a reason to accuse you, they would probably only need to spend about 15 minutes on any of your social media accounts to find something they could accuse you of. <laughs> something you said that was a little crass, it wasn't like something to say, see, I got you. They couldn't find anything with Jesus except the fact that he claimed to be God. And that's why they crucified him. And we see him at this moment hanging on a cross. I don't know if you remember what we talked about, but hanging on a cross was dying from suffocation. It was asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe because of the position of the cross. Nails driven into his hands and feet, and he was falsely accused. He, he had done nothing wrong. And where we pick up the story is Jesus hanging in the balance of eternity between heaven and earth, between the land of the living and the land of the dead on our behalf. So let's pick that story back up. Here's what it says, Luke 23, 44. It was about noon. It was about noon. Remember, this is Passover. This is the time when the Old Testament, when the children of God for generations, thousands of years would sacrifice Passover lambs. There would be a celebration to remember their sin, their need for a savior, their need to be delivered out of their death and their slavery, that there was a God who brought life and they needed to follow him. And so at this moment, God chose for this plan to happen. That was not an accident. And nothing that we see in Luke 23 is by accident. Every bit of it is fulfillment of what God said would happen. And he's making it happen. He gave words of life in the Old Testament, and now he's making those words come to life in front of our eyes. And this is one of those moments. 
It's about noon. Darkness had come over the whole land until three. I want you to think about this. We're sitting here right now, and all of a sudden, it's close to noon, and church service is over. You start to walk out, and everything goes black. You're thinking, well, that's really strange. What's going on here? I, this, is, this has never happened before. This is weird. And then it doesn't go away for an hour, and then another hour, and then another hour. And that's literally what is happening. Now, there's some scholars who have tried to explain this and said there was a solar eclipse at the time. There are other scholars who say, well, you know, it wasn't a solar eclipse necessarily. God just miraculously, you know, made it dark. Either way, it got dark. <laughs> it got dark. At the moment that Jesus is dying, God is communicating. You ready for this? For us, what we sang in the song earlier, the light is disappearing. You're killing the Son of God, the light of the world. And, and it's disappearing, it's fading. Oh, his life is fading, and literally the sun itself is fading. And then it says, because the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. He's on the cross, it's noon, it's gotten dark. In Matthew's gospel, it says there was an earthquake that happens at this moment. By the way, that's documented by Roman history. Like a lot of this is documented from Josephus, which is a Jewish historian, from Roman history. That these things are documented things that happen, and this veil, this, this veil in the sanctuary was torn down the middle. Now, this is no small thing, okay? The veil was something that when God led his people out of slavery in the Old Testament and the book of Exodus, he told them, you are going to build a, a holy place, a tabernacle, a temporary meeting place. See, we have a tabernacle. We don't own it. It's just temporary. Right? You're going to build a tent, and you're going to travel with that tent, but, but I need a place where I can gather with you, because here's the deal. You're sinful, and I'm holy, and if I show up, and there's not something, a barrier between me and you, okay? if there's not a barrier, I'll have to strike you dead, because I can't have sin in my presence. You will be wiped out. And so God had them build a tabernacle. He had an outer court that had curtains, and you went into the tabernacle. Then there was an inner court, and then there was the Holy of Holies, and that's the veil we're talking about that separated the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you have seen Indiana Jones, right? The original one, the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the Ark, and you know they all melt, and it's just craziness, and it's not biblical. But anyway, that's... The Ark of the Covenant is there, and the Ark of the Covenant was the place where the high priest would go in once a year, and he would offer, offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. He would sprinkle the blood on the, on, on the Ark and the cherubim. There were two angels on top that were fashioned. It was made out of gold. Inside it were the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff that, that budded life when it was a dead staff. And so there's something dead inside of it that came back to life inside the Ark. The law represents something dead that's going to come to life one day. All of these are pictures that God gives of what's getting ready to happen. And so at this moment, when the veil tears in two, it is not insignificant. God is declaring something that has never been declared before so clearly. It had been told in the Old Testament, but not so clearly. Because look in Exodus. This is what it says in Exodus. 
It says, you were to make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it. So you've got the angels on the veil, and then inside you've got the two cherubim. Now, we don't know if this is exactly when Herod rebuilt the temple, if he built this exactly to specification. But probably. This was a big deal, to do it right. And it said, hanging on four gold-plated posts of acacia wood that have gold hooks and that stand on four silver bases. Hang the veil under the class and bring the ark of the testimony there behind the veil. So the veil will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. That there's a holy place, but then there's a most holy place. And when you finally get to the most holy place, if you aren't purified, you're dead. You cannot stand before God. There, there is no hope. There, you are accused in that most holy place. And it says, put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. He calls it the mercy seat. The seat that sits on top of the law. The, the seat that, that's on top that says, it, it's, it's not called the judgment seat. It's called the mercy seat. And he says, you're going to set it there. And he says, I love this. Place the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite to the table and put the table on the north side. These were specific instructions for a specific reason. And here is God telling them, now, while Jesus is on the cross, there is an earthquake. And in the midst of that earthquake, the temple isn't destroyed, but the veil itself rips in half. This would have been a thick veil. This would have been nobody gets by it, right? This is the most protected place in the nation. This is like more protected than the White House. Like you don't get in here unless you're the high priest once a year. And even then, they used to tie a rope, it says, when you read the Old Testament, around the high priest's ankle so that when he would go in and he had bells on the tassels of the robe he wore in so that if he wasn't pure and he got struck dead, they could drag his dead body out and send in another guy. Now, we think of this and think, well, that just sounds like, that's like a fairy tale. That doesn't really happen. That, that's just weird stuff. That you. That's what Scripture says. And you can deny it. Say, I don't believe all that fairy tale stuff and... I'm just, again, I'm just trying to live life in the land of the dead. You're going to live your life and you're going to die and you're going to be forgotten within three to four generations. Every single person. I know that sounds depressing. It's just truth. I'm not trying to be depressing. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just telling you the truth of the world we live in. And God says he has a mercy seat. That in the midst of that truth of death, he has a way to have mercy on us. Look at what Hebrews says. Hebrews says it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Boldness? Boldness to enter the place where you got struck dead if you weren't clean? Yeah. Boldness to enter the sanctuary, look, by a new and living way. In other words, when the veil tore, it was a symbol, the old covenant's done. The old covenant is over. There is a new covenant. And look what Hebrews says. It's beautiful. He has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. See, that's why communion is such an important symbol to us as Christians. 
It's not just bread and wine. It's the reminder that it was his blood and his flesh that provide the access for us. It's the new veil that Jesus is, is, is in heaven right now for you and for me if you know him. And he is standing before the holiness of God. He is that in between. He is holy standing before the holiness of God holding back his wrath as the mercy seat. On our behalf. So that if you are a believer and you sin, when you sin, Jesus says, I got that. I've made sacrifice for that sin. That's not going to be judged. And then he looks at us and says, don't do that. (laughs) Stop it. Which is what he said to people all the time when he was on the earth. He's standing like the high priest stood, only He's between heaven and eternity. There's no longer an earthly veil. There is a heavenly veil. And either you see who Christ is and you enter through him or you're going to have to stand one day waking up in the presence and sanctuary of God and he is going in his holiness to have to judge. Because Jesus is going to say, I don't know him. And that's what Jesus is doing. And the symbol of the cross is just that. He's hanging on the cross between heaven and earth on our behalf. And then he goes on. Look at this. He says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus is now the high priest that is entering in between for us. Not an earthly high priest, a heavenly high priest. And then it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean like they sprinkled the altar, which was the symbol of sin with Aaron's staff and with the Ten Commandments, with the commandments in there, the law in there that they were guilty of. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water because the high priest had to wash themselves. That's why we do baptism. It's a symbol of what we're believing God is doing on our behalf, that he's cleansing us. It doesn't really cleanse us, just like it didn't cleanse the priests in the Old Testament. They got wet, and and it was a symbol of them being clean. But guess what? They didn't use bleach. They still had germs all over them when they came out. It, It was, will you obey me and believe that I'll clean you And that was the issue. And then it says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Look at these words in here. I mean, it's like a true heart that we can have full assurance. We can enter with confidence. Our hearts are sprinkled. Our bodies walk. This is what people long for. This is what people give their lives to in other areas of their life in their diets, in their relationships. This is the kind of stuff we long for and we reject God for it and try to pursue it in the land of the dead. And and God is saying, I sent Christ so that he would be the confession of our hope. Listen, I have no hope in this world without Christ. I don't have it. I got nothing. I got nothing to offer you. I can give you some great financial plan and you know what? The economy can just blow up tomorrow. We've seen that happen twice in my generation. 2001, the dot-com bubble, and we saw it happen in 2008 with the real estate. It could happen again in a heartbeat. I could give you some slick church plan, how we're going to bring a bunch of people in, and here's what's going to happen, and you know what? In a second, the government could say, you know what? I'm not going to let you meet in here anymore. We don't have a place to meet. 
Now what are you going to do? Just quit? Well, that was a good run. Had a good run there. Like, like this is the reality of our world. And, and we as believers, listen, shouldn't be panicked. We should be the most hopeful, bold, encouraged, full of heart people on the face of the planet. And most of the Christians I meet, including myself sometimes, are not that way. We're still looking for something that will give us life. Because we don't believe that Jesus really is the truth, the way, and the life. He goes on and he says this in Hebrews. And let us be concerned. See, here's the deal. When you finally realize what Jesus has done for you, when you finally understand what he's done and and how you can enter and have a relationship with him, look at me. You, You stop using people. You stop looking to get life from others because you realize, I contain life. I don't need anything from anybody. I got all I need for my heavenly dwelling and my eternal life. There's nothing here that's going to last. I could eat a great meal tomorrow. Guess what? Doesn't last. You're going to have to eat again. You maybe could try to fast for a while. Doesn't last. You're going to have to eat at some point. This world's designed to show us that it doesn't last And when you realize that and you begin to live your life, look at me, according to the law of God, understanding that the laws that he have written are there because he loves us and he wants us to know how to love other people well. They're not there to keep us from doing things. They're there to help us understand the world around us and not walk like dead people, but walk alive. To give life to people instead of looking to use people. That means we can tell people boldly about their sin because we care about them. We're not trying to get them to like us and manipulate them so we can get the good job. We can boldly look and say things that other people can't or won't. We can also boldly tell people how loved they are, regardless of how a mess they are. Because there's a God who died for us, who loved us more than anyone could love. He goes on and he says... If that's your heart, if you believe what Hebrews says, if you believe that Jesus has torn this curtain, he says, and let us be concerned about one another in order to to promote love and good works. It's not just about love. It's not just about works. Love and works go hand in hand. If you love someone, you'll do the things that are loving, that God says are loving. Simple. It's not rocket science. If you don't do the works God asks you to do, then you're basically declaring, I don't love you. I don't care what you have to say. I'm not going to listen to you. It's just that simple. It's not rocket science. It's not. And yet we make it so complicated. And he looks, look at this. Not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, if we understand that we live in the land of the dead, that we are then we long for real life. We long for the land of the living. We long for Christ to come back and bring his kingdom to earth, knowing that until that happens, we're not going to have a kingdom that lasts. Every nation's going to fall. Every ruler's going to fall. Every family's going to fall apart. It's going to happen. But he says, look, as you see even more how quickly things are getting bad, You should be encouraging one another more. 
You can do this. You can walk with Christ. Let's walk with him together. Let's not sin. Let's do what God asks us to do. Let's believe his word. Let's believe scripture together that this is true. Let's reach out to people. Let's care about them. Let's be truthful with them. These are the things that are encouraging. But so many people, it's evident they don't believe what God says in the word because it's always evident when you don't want to gather together to talk about how great God is. You don't want to be together to just listen to his word and think and pray and praise him because you're busy. You've got stuff to do, places to go, people to see. And in any other relationship, the person that you do that to would look at you and say, you don't love me. You don't love our family. You don't love our kids. Yeah, I do. No, you're never here. Well, you don't understand. No, I understand. It's just math. Time, talent, treasures, and stories. It's just math. When you look at how you spend your time, how you use your, your ability to walk and speak and you know, other special abilities that you have and how you, the stories that you tell and the things you treasure and, and make priorities for, it's, it's real easy to expose us pretty quickly. He goes on and he says this, and, and Jesus called out with a loud voice. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross. There's an earthquake. It's dark outside. He's hanging on the cross, and Jesus, the Son of God, cries out. The last time we see Jesus crying out, he's crying out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He's crying out for us. Jesus in that moment is gathered with the people in between the sanctuary as a high priest making a sacrifice for a bunch of stupid sinners who crucified him. Just being real. And he's saying, God, forgive them. He's acting like a high priest. And Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last and when the centurion saw what happened, the centurion who was on guard to make sure they died on the cross, that was his job, he began to glorify God saying, this man really was righteous. You've got a bunch of Israelites at their highest holy time, Christmas, no, Passover, at their highest holy time, who won't acknowledge who Jesus really is, and this pagan, hated Roman soldier, because the Roman soldiers were not liked in their day. They were respected because they could kill you on a whim. They weren't your buddies, because you knew they were under the order of Rome, and there was nothing you do, could do to manipulate them. This Roman centurion sees more of who Jesus is than his own people who are on the outside looking in. Can I tell you that can be us so easily? Now when Jesus cries out, look at this, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. It's at this moment that he's quoting Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is a psalm that David wrote. It's a psalm of protection. There are many in this moment that probably thought, oh my goodness, he's crying out for God and the angels are going to come back. But when you read Psalm 31, it is this beautiful picture of someone who understands the dead world they live in and the life that's only found if another kingdom and another world comes. Psalm 31, look at this. We're going to look at the whole psalm, but part of it. 
This is how it starts out. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. See, if Jesus would have cried out this word, it would have been like Jesus saying, as he's hanging on the cross, he would have raised up and said, amazing grace, and dropped, and all of you would have went, how sweet the sound. Like, it's in your head, right? For Jews, it's the same thing. When you quote a psalm like this, especially a psalm of persecution, because they believed they were persecuted by the Romans. These were the psalms they were made to sing every Sunday, like Amazing Grace, because these were the songs they wanted them to hear, that we're going to be delivered, God's going to come, he's going to protect you. They would have known this psalm like Amazing Grace to us. And when he stood up and said that, they could have finished the front and the back and in between of the psalm, because it was a song. And he says, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Wow, it seems like you're being disgraced right now. God kind of failed on that one. No, it's just temporary. He's not being disgraced. He's being lifted up, and we'll see that in a minute. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. I wonder if Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross and he can't breathe, while he can't breathe, if he's quoting till he gets to this verse we see and then he pulls himself up to, to say the underlying part and drop back down. Because that's what you and I do, right? Like you're singing along. And then you sing this chorus because it's loud, woohoo, right? Here he is hanging, and while he's hanging there, he's thinking of this song, and he pulls himself up to say the next part. He says, You will free me from the net that is securely set for me. I'm not getting out of this. For you are my refuge, and into your hand I entrust my spirit. And he drops down. And it says, You redeem me, Lord God of truth. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love because you have seen my affliction. Can you just imagine? Jesus falls, he dies, and the next moment what Jesus is singing is this. In the next moment, after his death, Jesus is singing, you redeem me, Lord. Like, wait, you're dead. <laughs> yeah, because I know what's coming in three days. So you redeem me, Lord. He's... He goes on and it says this in the psalm, you have known the troubles of my life and have not handed me over to the enemy. You have set my feet in a spacious place. That's why he looked at the thief on the cross last week and said, today, Mr. Thief who believes in me, you'll be with me in paradise, in a spacious place. Because that's where I'm going as soon as this life's over. As soon as I'm dead and I'm out of this land of the dead, I'm going to paradise and you're coming with me. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. Can you guys hear? Have you ever been here? Have you ever read these words and thought to yourself, that's me, I got that one. Yep, feeling it. My eyes are worn out from angry sorrow. You ever had angry sorrow? Like really angry sorrow. Not just you're sad, not just you're angry, but there's just this, this frustration. That my whole being as well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my sinfulness. Jesus wasn't sinful. David was who wrote this. 
and my bones wasted away. I am ridiculed by all my adversaries and even by my neighbors. I am dreaded by my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street run from me. I'm forgotten, gone from memory, like a dead person, like broken pottery. I mean, if you read this psalm and you've never been there, there's a moment, there's going to come a moment in your life where you feel this way. And look at what he says next in verse 13. I have heard the gossip of many. Terror is on every side. When they conspired against me, they plotted to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. This is the land of the dead. What do I expect? I keep looking for life. I'm not going to find it here. I got to have someone else bring life that's outside of the realm of death. We know now by quantum mechanics that there are other dimensions we can't get to in our current physical form. That our current physical form can't get to the dimension because the matter's different there. The Bible's been saying that since it was written. Since Genesis chapter 3, when he separated man and said, I'm putting you in a place where matter's different than the matter I have. And God is bringing creation back together through the person of Christ. He goes on and he says in Luke, all the crowds had gathered for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they went home, striking their chests. This is that angry sorrow. People were watching what went on, and they're going, this... This isn't right. Listen, even people who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, when they read the account of Jesus, say, yeah, I hope that never happens to anybody. I hope he doesn't live a life like that, caring for people, loving for people, helping people, and then get killed for it. That's just wrong. They have to admit, that's not good. That's wrong that that happened to that man. Even if it was a great story, they should say, yeah, that's a, that story, that's just bad that it happened that way. He goes on and he says, look at this. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance. That's what we just read in Psalm 31. They stood at a distance. They were afraid. You see, these people had not put their hope in Psalm 31. They had put their hope in earthly redemption. That Jesus was going to come into the city as a Messiah. He was going to establish his kingship, overthrow the Romans, kill Pilate, kill Herod. And they were going to sit and they were going to rule everybody. And when he died, everything they had built their life on and believed that life was about crumbled. And let me tell you, you can be there tomorrow. God has a way of lovingly letting our lives crumble to show us what our idols really are. He loves us enough to let us crumble. You want to know why? Because he's the one that can put the pieces back together. He's the one that can put Humpty Dumpty back together again, okay? And you're Humpty Dumpty, me too. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty was dumb, he was sitting on a wall, fell off. That's what happens to us. We're in places we shouldn't be, we fall off, we get all cracked, and then we're like, oh, I can't put him back together. He goes on and he says, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. That was his dad's name. That was Jesus' dad's earthly father's name, stepfather. He says, a member of the Sanhedrin. This was one, he's a member of the ruling council that ruled to kill Jesus. 
And it says, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward, look at this, to the kingdom of God. This was a man who was not trying to find life on this side of eternity. This was a man that was telling people, the only way you're going to find life is if with God. You can't find it. I can't bring you life as a priest. We're not going to fix this. God has to intervene. And he was one of the few that stood up and said, I don't agree with this. To do this was putting his own life at risk, putting his own fortune at risk, putting whatever business he had at risk. This was putting everything at risk to go ask for Jesus' body. Number one, it was also putting his ability to worship at risk because if he were to touch a dead body and he was to wrap that dead body, he couldn't go worship for seven days, according to the Old Testament, at the most important holy time of the year. This is an act of incredible faith, believing that the kingdom might still come. There, there's still hope. This is a man that was getting ready probably to offer sacrifices, someone the people would look to. If he was someone who stood up to the other religious leaders, they were probably the guy that they, he would go to. I want Joseph to, to do my lamb. I want him to, you know, I want him to be, he's the guy. He's the, sorry guys, I can't. I'm dirty. I decided to bury Jesus. Can't help you. I'm unclean for seven days, according to the Old Testament. Make sure I don't spread any disease around. That's why that law was there, by the way. It's a really nice law. Had people obeyed it during the plague, the plague wouldn't have killed so many people. That's also why the Jews got killed by many in Europe, because they believed that the Jews had hexes and stuff, and what the Jews were doing were just obeying the Old Testament and not getting the plague as badly as everybody else. Instead of asking the Jews, hey, your laws seem pretty smart. Seems like you know some things we don't. They looked at them and said, you're crazy people. You got spiritual stuff. We're going to kill you because we don't like you. Why don't you ask them about their laws of the Old Testament that were saving them from getting the plague, about how they had to wash, how they were careful with disease when no other nations were. And he looks, look at this, he says, he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Not only now is he going to be outed before his own people, now he's going to be outed before the Romans. I'm connected to this rebel you just crucified. Guys, this is an incredible act of faith. This is laying everything on the line. They made his grave with the wicked. This is what Isaiah says. Isaiah 53, 9 says this about Jesus, about the Messiah. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Oh, like a rich man from Arimathea, Joseph? Remember, Isaiah was written like six, 700 years before this happened. And then it says, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their sin, their iniquities. You see, the people of Jesus' day only liked believing the parts of the Bible they could figure out. They only liked believing the parts of the Bible that benefited them. They didn't, they didn't understand Psalm 31. They didn't understand Isaiah 53. They didn't understand all kinds of passages in the Old Testament because it didn't fit their narrative. It didn't fit the way they wanted life to happen. So i got to dismiss all that stuff because there's a life I'm looking for and I'm looking at which idol, which God I can add to it so I can get this, this life that I believe is really living. 
And if I get Jesus, then I got this power to live the life I want to live. Versus saying, I'm a dead man. I hope that there's a God who will give me life and I can just say thank you by the way I live in a dead body this life. And he says, look at this, he will carry their iniquities. He's going to be willing to die when everyone else is trying to stay alive. Goes on and he says this, therefore I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as spoil because he has submitted himself to death and was accounted or was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Hebrews says that Jesus today, right now, is standing in heaven, interceding before the holiness and awesomeness of God and your and I's stupidity. That was the plan from Genesis 1, when, when the Godhead said, let's create man in our image, knowing that man would do the wrong thing. Luke 23, 53 says, taking his body down, taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb, cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. This is beautiful. Joseph takes him down and wraps him personally. He doesn't have time to do proper embalming. We'll see that in a second. Because he's in a hurry because the sun's going down and he's got to get this done before the Sabbath hits, right? And he doesn't want Jesus' body just left out there do you know what that also meant? It also meant that Joseph probably was concerned about Jesus' body because Joseph was probably a religious leader who believed in the resurrection. Because there were other religious leaders who didn't believe in the resurrection. The, the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed that there was going to be a resurrection of an earthly body. This is incredible faith. And then he says, it was preparation day. That was preparation for the Sabbath, to get ready for the Sabbath because you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. You had to fix all your meals and get them ready. And then he says, was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. In other words, they wanted to be sure how to get back and who he was and where he was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and they rested on the Sabbath according to the command. Everybody is obeying God in this. This is your loved one. And you're like, you know what? I know this happened, but I know Jesus would want me to obey God. So I'm not gonna go do what I want to do on the Sabbath, which is embalm his body and put spices and I'm, I'm, I'm going to go worship God. I'm going to go worship God after the man that I loved, the man that I put my hope in is dead, but I'm still going to honor God and go to the Sabbath and worship and thank God and believe him. My plans have been shattered, but I'm still showing up to God and telling him you're my hope. These people were amazing people of faith and we see one man and a bunch of women all the rest of the followers are struggling. And these women are just so caring. And then it says in Luke 2, 4, look at this. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. We're celebrating Christmas soon. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and family line of David. Because the Messiah was to come from David. To be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there... The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Remember, it was always the firstborn that was sacrificed, the firstborn lamb. And she wrapped him snugly in cloth. Don't miss the imagery. And placed him in a manger. That's someplace where animals 
feed on to stay alive. Because there was no room for them at the lodging place. There was no room for someone who had eternal life in our world because we live in the land of the dead. Jesus' story starts and ends very similarly. It is a picture of what it looks like to say this. I wrap this child, I, I place it in a manger, which is a feeding trough, which is what gives life to, to, to the animals, and I, I place him there because there's just no room for some kid like this, for a family like this. Listen, if you follow Christ, there will not be room for you in this world. It will be difficult, I promise, and it's worth it. It is worth it because look at what happens as we read on. On the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, three days later, they've been resting, they've, they're waiting. Very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, these women, bringing the spices they had prepared days before, right? They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, we know in the other gospel accounts, there was a Roman guard, probably a dozen soldiers, guarding this tomb with a Roman seal placed on the tomb. Luke would have known that people would have known the other gospels. Luke was probably one of the later gospels written, especially of the three, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And so Luke would have known when he was writing his story that people had already read the other biographies. That's why the Gospels aren't identical. They have a lot of similarities, but there's parts he leaves out because he's like, yeah, Matthew already wrote about that. And then there's parts he's emphasized because he's like, I want to repeat Matthew. I want to repeat what Matthew said. And so he would have known, they would have known these things. And for a Roman guard to let a Roman seal be broken was, a, was an act of treason. They would be executed. So for this stone to be rolled away was a huge deal. This was no small thing. It even says in one of the gospel accounts that the women came to the tomb not knowing how they would roll the stone away to get into him. And they went by faith anyway. Like, well, I guess we'll just have to figure it out when we get there. Maybe the Roman soldiers will help us. What? They're not going to break a Roman seal? Like, what are you, Seriously? And here they go, and look at this. They found it. They went in. Now they're unclean because they're in a burial chamber. But did not find the body, the Lord Jesus. When they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. Let me see. What was on top of the mercy seat? Two angels. Two cherubim standing over the mercy seat, this signified the death and the blood that was shed. The manna that was inside the ark, the law that was there, the bud of Aaron's staff. And it says, so the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. This is always the response, by the way, of a relationship with God. It's not you're my best buddy. It's terror when God shows up. When holiness shows up, you realize you're undone. You are a dead man. And she said, and they, here's what it said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Ask the men. He is not here. He has been resurrected. He came back to life. I mean, can you imagine 
You go to this tomb. You've spent this time preparing these spices. You had a plan. And the plan was we're going to carefully unroll him, and then we're going to have to stay unclean in the seven days. So we've got to be sure we're prepared for our families to be unclean for seven days. So you've made this elaborate plan to be able to do this. And then you show up, and it's all undone. Like, it's like crazy time. You know, like he's resurrected. You're seeing angels. Like, this is nuts. And then it goes on. Look at this. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rised on the third day. And then they remembered his words. <laughs> I love that. It's like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot. You're right, he did tell us that. They don't even argue. I love that. They're like, yeah, you're right. And then it goes on and it says, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. So they found where they were gathered, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. And you're thinking, wow. But these words seem like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. <laughs> Isn't that so true? Isn't that so true that we still believe nonsense instead of the truth? It is so much easier to believe nonsense. It'd be so much easier to say, we went to the tomb, he's there, we unwrapped him, we put spice on, we put it back. He's, he's there, you can go visit him tomorrow. I mean, that's easy. That, that fits my, yep, that fits my schedule, fits my plan. That's, yeah, that's pretty, I guess we'll go visit him once a year, put a little flowers there, just remember him. He's a great, you know, rabbi. It's good having him for a while. This does this is crazy. Either this is true, or again, Christians are the most lunatic people on the face of the planet. We believe in a guy that supposedly came back from the dead. We believe in this stuff. And then he goes on and it says, they didn't believe them. Listen, number one, they're women. We still have struggle believing people we don't think are valuable in our culture today. Women weren't highly valued in this culture, but Jesus highly elevated women in his ministry, treated them as friends, as mothers and daughters. And here he is, and these women are telling the truth, and it's nonsense. But look at this. This is beautiful. This is the last passage we'll look at. But these words seem like nonsense, but Peter, however, I love that. Peter, however. Remember, this is Peter. Do you remember the last time Peter had a moment with Jesus? A couple of weeks ago, we read at the end of Luke. Remember, look, the last moment Peter had with Jesus was Peter had just denied Jesus three times, which Jesus told him he would do. He was standing off at a distance, watching Jesus be falsely accused and beaten. He's standing off to the side, and the third time he denies Jesus, and he hears the rooster crow, he looks because he realizes what just happened, and Jesus makes eye contact with him and peers right through his soul. That is the last moment Peter had with the man he said was the Messiah. Peter is still broken over his sin. He's still broken over what he said and did to the man he claimed he loved. He's still broken over that. And so, of course, he's the first one that runs. He's like, I'll see him again and maybe I can say I'm sorry. 
Maybe I can look at him and say, I'm sorry, I, I believe in you. I, I've been dying inside for the last three days. I've been dying because I denied you and the last moment we had was you looking at me just in this look that just killed me. So Peter runs and says, ran to the tomb. These guys ran, wore robes back then. Can you imagine the scene? Pulling up the robe. Woo! Running. Trying to run. I mean, it would be hilarious. This would, I mean, if I was one of the disciples, I'd be like, dude, Peter looks like an idiot. Look at that. What is he? Okay, this is Peter. He does stuff like this all the time. He's, he lives by his emotions and he just goes. Just let him go. Right? Then it looks... When he stopped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went home amazed at what had happened. Amazed. Let me ask you. Are you amazed? Are you amazed at the reality of our God, the reality of eternity, and the reality of heaven? Or do you spend more time getting amazed at things in this world that are passing away and dead than you do getting amazed by the God of the universe? Can I just tell you, our world is set up to try to get you to be amazed at all the stuff around us. Be amazed that you can get Disney Plus for $5.99. Be amazed and sign up. Everything is about being amazed and look at all this stuff. And in reality, it's all going to pass away. It only takes one ginormous hurricane and Disneyland's gone. <laughs> Done. Like we are so fragile. And he says he's amazed at what's happened. Listen, God wants you to be amazed by him. And yes, that should cause you to fall on your face in terror at how amazing and holy and awesome he is. And in the same moment you do that, like the angels, like Jesus does in Revelation, you hear words of encouragement, which is what we read in Hebrew. God looks at you and he says, it's okay, I love you. There's a hope in the land of the dead. And the hope is me. See, Peter and these women are right on that cusp. And what's really cool, we're going to see coming up, is Jesus just doesn't come back to life and disappear. He actually comes back to life and comes and walks with them for over 40 days, teaching them, being with them, loving them, appearing before them, giving them encouragement and confidence. Because like it said in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Jesus came and then he ascended as a part of the biblical narrative. And see, that's the beauty of what we see. Let me ask you, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why? Why do you constantly, why? Why do we, I'll put myself in there, why do we constantly keep looking for the living among the dead? in our finances, in our relationships, in our schedules. We're constantly looking for the living, not recognizing that we're 
in a dead world versus saying, God, I need you to bring me life and I need you to attach me to things that are, that are the life-giving things that you want me to be a part of, recognizing that even though I think it's not about how I feel they're life-giving, because the things that Jesus says are really life-giving, he turned the entire world upside down by dying. And he told us, you must lay down your life. He who wants to be first will become last. He who is last will become first. In this moment, Jesus takes the entire narrative that the Jews had built up, the false narrative, and he turns it upside down. And then he looks at us and he looks at all of his followers and he says, are you willing to take the world's narrative about how to get life and turn it upside down and say, this world has nothing to offer me. I'm living this world and this life for a different reason and I know death is coming and it could come at the hands of a person. It could come at the hands of a natural disaster, a disease. It could just come, Jesus is gonna come back and this body doesn't survive. It's coming. And I'm not worried about it because this is the land of the dead and I'm, wet, I'm ready for the land of the living. If you've not trusted Christ, if you've not said to him, you're the only place to find life, I, I encourage you to do that this morning. To surrender and be like, I've been trying to find life everywhere I can, using people, using things, and I'm done. I just want to, to surrender my life because Jesus, you surrendered your life to me. And when you do that, Jesus is standing before God the Father and he says, there's another one. They're mine. That's my child. And he holds back the wrath of God. And when you go before heaven someday, you want to know who's going to be escorting you? Jesus. He's going to pull you up. This is our kid. This is our family member. This great. But if you're not part of the family, and you get there and all you have is death, Jesus says there's an eternal death. He doesn't want anyone to experience that. He wants all to come to repentance. Because he loves us that.